This is uh, Luke 15, verse 1 through 9. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness to go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than other than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. But suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1977, a 49-year-old German factory worker named Erwin Kreutz had decided he was going to visit the great city of San Francisco. And so he took his life savings. He had seen San Francisco portrayed in all kinds of movies and, and TV shows. And so he said, I am headed there. And so he boarded a plane from Frankfurt, Germany. And that plane flew across the Atlantic Ocean and landed in Bangor, Maine. Who is here? But Kreutz, who worked in a brewery, had been known to enjoy the occasional beverage. And 17 beers in on the flight, heard the flight attendant, who knew he was headed to San Francisco, say, enjoy your time in San Francisco. Startled, he immediately got off the plane and thought, I must be where I'm supposed to be. So he spent the next few days wandering around the quaint city of Bangor, Maine thinking that he was in San Francisco. A German man who uh, had a significant language barrier uh, spent three days there and, and uh, frequented some Chinese restaurants, which he knew were in San Francisco, uh, but realized, I must be in a suburb of the city. And so he hailed a taxi, and he said, please take me to downtown San Francisco. And the taxi driver looked at him like he was crazy and sped away. Finally, he found a, uh, a person who could help him a little bit, and she realized he was not where he thought he was. And so uh, she got in contact with a friend uh, who could speak a little bit of German and realized the dilemma and the situation. Uh, the San Francisco Herald got a hold of the story and realized that there was a man all the way across the country who was supposed to be in their great city, and so they paid for him to fly to San Francisco, and they hosted him there for four days, in which the mayor of San Francisco presented him with a proclamation that said San Francisco does, in fact, exist. Kreutz then boarded a plane after four magnificent days in San Francisco, holding a sign that just said, please let me off this plane. True story. Uh, have you ever been lost? Have you ever been lost? You're a, a lost person sometimes. Uh, I got lost all the time as a child. I'll tell you a story about that later. But Jesus tells a story about some lost sinners. And let's kind of set the scene because stepping into Luke chapter 15, we need to look at the preceding verses just a little bit. In Luke chapter 14, 
we read that there are some tax collectors and sinners who are responding to Jesus' invitation, and one that we've uh, extended in this room, those who have ears to hear should listen. That's what Luke 14, 35 says. Those who have ears to hear should listen, and those who show up to listen are those who have the reputation of sinners. And the complaint lodged against Jesus in this moment is that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Some gathered to listen, others gathered to complain. Sinners. That's the reference made by the religious people, by the elites. And here's what they're saying. These are people whose identity is dirty. These are people who you could point at them and say, oh, I know exactly what you are. These are prostitutes, drunks, cheats, adulterers, liars, embezzlers, pornographers, swindlers, people who wore their sin like a scarlet letter and the entire town knew what it was. And the scandal is that Jesus feels no shame. He makes it no secret that he loves the sinner. He he doesn't deflect or defend, but instead he directly comments on this accusation and expresses that this is precisely what he's arrived to do. And he's intent on doing it. Sinners, see here's why Jesus loves them. They are those with no pretend righteousness They know that they're lost. Therefore, they have no need for a savior. Those who have claimed to have a righteousness of their own, these Pharisees, are not listening, but complaining. And Pharisees should have functioned like shepherds for God's people. Those who should have been the shepherds for God's people react with complaint, but the true shepherd reacts with this kind of story, this kind of way of thinking, this kind of upside-down reversal in God's kingdom is a threat to any and all of us who want to stand on our own. And it was especially a threat to these Pharisees. If you're not doing it the way we want it done, you're not doing it right. Another word for complaining, some of our translations say it this way, mumbling or murmuring. I like this idea that some of us might have a heart murmur. You have a heart murmur from time to time. You never say it out loud. Man, what is that person thinking? They, they, don't, they don't deserve God's grace. Look at how much they've screwed up. And we would never say that out loud, but there's kind of this subtle thing happening within us where we think, I'm better than that person. There's a heart murmur in the hearts of these Pharisees, these religious elites, these people who think that they've jockeyed themselves into a position to be good enough for like them, some of us haven't yet figured out what it means to have a heart murmur. We might walk into a room expecting to to have someone broadcast how great we are instead of how important they are. People who hide their sin and pretend they are righteous aren't ready. They, They don't have ears to hear because they don't know they're lost. People whose sin has been public and who are known as sinners have nothing left to give. They're ready to give. So what is it that's that's going on in these parables? And and although these are twin parables, they're not identical, okay? I have twins, not identical. 
uh, it was kind of funny. We have boy girl friends. It's impossible to have identical boy girl friends. And we had so many people upon first meeting them and saw a boy and a girl ask, are they identical? I don't think you know how this works, but that's okay. These are twin parables. They're not identical. They're communicating something similar, but not the same. And sometimes it's tempting to over-spiritualize every aspect of every story we encounter in the Bible. There are things that are just recorded in God's word that we're not meant to emulate. They might be descriptive and not prescriptive. And some people have especially attempted to do things like this with the parables, taking every detail and trying to extrapolate and apply it to the everyday life of a person in America in 2021. But with each layer of detail, you kind of have to adjust your theology just a little bit to fit. And this isn't the intent of the parable. A, a parable is intended to communicate one singular big idea about what God's doing in your life. And so we might try to be persuaded to pencil a person into every role in the story. Who is the shepherd or who is the woman? Who is the lost sheep? Who are the 99? Who is the coin? Who are the other nine coins? And I'll admit, like, wrestling with that this week is kind of tricky because it gets really easy to point fingers at people or yourself and say, I'm this and those people are that. But I love this resource, and I'll probably reference it as long as we preach on the parables. I referenced it a few weeks ago. Klein Snodgrass wrote an award-winning commentary on the parables of Jesus. And here's what he says, and I found this fascinating. The early church most often understood the shepherds going to find the sheep as a reference to the incomers, meaning Jesus and his sheep, to recover lost humanity, with the 99 understood as the redeemed. As in Jesus is leaving heaven, leaving those who have no need of his salvation to step into earth to go after the lost. And in that sense, this is how the early church would have interpreted this parable in the medieval ages. In that sense, all of us are the lost sheep. This also could perhaps be a sarcastic statement. Uh, Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees, and as a big fan of sarcasm myself, the Jesus that I know and serve is a big sarcastic person as well. So perhaps that's what he's doing, is taking a jab at some of these Pharisees. That there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents than the 99 of you who think they have no need. Maybe either one of those is true. But really, these parables are not interested in what happened to the 99 that repented. Their intent is not to express what's happening to them, but to express the heart of the good shepherd going after the one. Let's not complicate this more than it needs to be. The, the plot structure of Jesus' parables are intended to be simple. It's like a Hallmark movie. You know how it's going to end when it begins. Rugged, handsome young man lives in the country, CEO of her own business, experiences some distress, moves to said countryside, they fall in love. Right, like you can make up the rest of this. You know how this is going to end. They'll have a small conflict. They'll reunite. Right? You know how the story ends. Let's not complicate the stories of Jesus more than they are intended to be. These parables illustrate what God and his kingdom are like, but they do not inform us of every aspect of Jesus' life. Jesus will use the phrase often, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a simile. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like. These are meant to be similes to help us see what things are like. And the, these parables are a how much more analogy. 
if a woman will search diligently for a lost coin, how much more will God diligently search for his lost And I love this thought from Snodgrass as well. Ancient texts should not be asked to deal with all of our contemporary issues. Like we don't need to take our life in 2023 and overlay it on the parables of Jesus and try to make sense of everything that's happening here. No, we should just go straight to the text and its context and say, okay, what is the big deal I have to deal with? When you ask questions of the scripture, it is not intended to answer. You'll make up the answer you wanted in the first place and read it into the scripture. Both of these uh, parables function in the same way. Both assume the presence of the kingdom. That in Jesus' ministry, God is at work to redeem his people and to fulfill his promises to his servants. And both present a defense of Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners and show that those complaining about his actions reveal their lack of understanding of God's attitude toward them. If that is the character of our God, it should be our character as well. These parables do not tell us how to search for the lost, but they do imply that we should. Unfortunately, sometimes we have strange ideas of what that means to search for the lost. Like most of us, when when we hear about that idea or we think about the idea of evangelism, you have an image of someone accosting someone else on a street corner, holding up a sign or shouting a message to them over the loudspeaker. And what we are intended to experience in these parables, we we are meant to see and admire the attitude and actions of God toward you. Your reaction to God's attitude and activity toward sinners reveals your own character. Some of us love sinners. Some of us would rather just confess that. I told you I got lost all the time as a kid. I really did. I mean, any location, uh, Walmart, uh, Aldi, it's really hard to get lost in Aldi. That, I mean, there are whole stores smaller than this place. And I could do it. Um, I got lost at, at uh, Silver Dollar City, uh, in any place. But one of the most uh, memorable times of getting lost, though, was as a teenager. I was about three and a half years old. Um, my brother Daniel would have been five and a half or six, and my younger brother Caleb would have been about six months old. And so there we are, a little family of five. We're at SeaWorld sea experiencing it together, and there's this large play area, and all these kids, hundreds of kids, all playing together on some different equipment. And Joel saw something shiny and wandered off. Uh, there was probably something in a gift shop or something that caught my attention. And so I wandered off. And then it didn't take but a few minutes. And I realized I had no idea what had happened. And it didn't take my mom long either to realize I had no idea what had happened. And I was talking to my mom about this this week. I just said, What do you remember about that moment? And it's a feeling that every parent in the room knows because. No matter what you want the people around you to think about you as a parent, your child has walked off before, and they've been lost, and you know the feeling. Panic. Like your heart just sinks. And that's what my mom said. She remembers feeling this panic that sets in, and then she made this incredible line. I think this parallels so well with our parable today. There were hundreds of other kids playing, and not once did the thought enter her mind, oh, It's okay that I don't know where my son is. Look at all these kids who are having fun playing with him. Some of you are wondering, how does the story end? I'm here, okay? (laughs) 
it, it ended okay. Found a security guard. I knew the protocol. I'd gotten lost enough times. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Um, but I, I love I loved that my mom said that. Like, the joy was in being reunited with Cody. It, it wasn't the, the joy of all the other kids playing, including my other brother, didn't matter in that moment because her son was lost. This is what we're meant to see about our God. Few things are more important than our perception of God, for from that understanding we perceive our own identity, how we should think and act, and how the world ought to be. If God is a seeking, caring God, then his grace should characterize our self-perception as we discover it. And it's, it's as if Jesus is saying this to the religious people who are challenging his idea of going and living. Your claim to know God is not supported by you complaining about the God of who is not seen. The whole of Scripture underscores that God is the one who takes the initiative. And that's what we see in both of these parables. <clears throat> Any action of humans is a response to the gracious God. Yet the whole of Scripture also insists that humans do indeed act. I love this line. Salvation is entirely the work of God, in which we are entirely involved. There's a huge difference between responding to the grace of God and trying to make oneself look nice. Now, in, in every family, there are finders, and there are people who lose things. <laughs> in our family, my wife is the finder, which I'm your loser, okay? Um, I'll admit that. But God is a finder. You are not the kind of thing that goes missing if you go to the grave. You're not disposable. You're not interchangeable. You're not replaceable. And you matter as much to God as anyone else. She's desperate to have you. In her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit tells the story of her friend Sally, who's part of a branch of a, a search and rescue team in the Rocky Mountains. And Sally still remembers the frantic search for a lost 11-year-old boy who was deaf and losing his eyesight. The boy wandered off during a late afternoon game of hide-and-seek. And because he was deaf, he was particularly hard to find. He had been blowing a whistle given to him for just such an occasion, but could not hear how close he was, those looking for him, because he was right by a nearby stream roar of the water made the signal impossible to reach those who were looking for him. After a, a harrowing night on his own, the sun came up and started blowing his whistle again. The search and rescue team finally found him, very cold, but okay. And Sally and the other search and rescue experts say that the key to survival often hinges on one thing, knowing and admitting you are lost. She says that's why kids are found more often than adults. Kids don't stray as far. They usually curl up in a sheltered place and wait for their rescue victim. Unlike many adults who get lost in the Rockies, kids don't desperately try to save themselves. Instead, they aren't afraid to stop and admit that they need help. Remember that invitation from Jesus? Be like a child. You'll receive my kingdom. 
thing that marks a child when they're lost is knowing and admitting that they're lost. God is a finder. He's not the kind of thing that gives missions to broken hearts. And so the question is not, will he find you? The question is, will you let yourself be found? Mark Scott says that we should pay attention to the strange twist in all of the parables because that's when God's character, his grace, his love are most vividly revealed. But there's a surprise. And for those listening, for those on the receiving end, is the joy with which the one recovering what had been lost walks. It's the shepherd who has the sheep on his shoulders as he walks back into his home and invites all of his friends to share in his joy. It's the woman who, upon searching and sweeping and sweeping and moving all the furniture throughout her house, finally found, finds the lost coin and in her joy welcomes all of her friends to have a party. That is a strange twist. It seems expected. But Mark Scott says this. I have this quote on the screen for us today. Volition matters more than cognition. Now, for those of us who don't have a doctor in front of our name, I can't hear what that means. You need to hear it. You don't have to understand it. And how many, how many times uh, have you said that to your kids? You don't have to understand what I mean. You don't have to believe me, but you do need to do what I mean. I have that conversation so often. We have three toddlers. I mean, every single day, that's, that is the crux of our conversation. I know you don't understand why you can't hit your kids with this, but I'm going to hit you if you do. <laughs> Not really, but you don't have to understand. God's grace is impossible to understand, but you do need to hear his heart. Very few have ears to hear if you listen. Can we simply marvel at the mystery of God's redemption? Can we be okay with things not being quite the way that they should be? And we are, we're so consumed sometimes with this idea of fair. We want life to be fair. And we think God should be fair. I just, I really don't think that's true. We don't want a fair God. We want a just God. I was reminded of this yesterday. I got to ref a few Christian Pittsburgh basketball games over at the middle school. And I don't know if you've watched Christian Pittsburgh uh, kids play basketball before. It's not the most clean game, okay? Every player has a violation on every play. And, and I, know, I know you think your kids are just amazing, and they are, but they travel, okay? They just, they do. Um, and and I, I find it interesting when I get feedback uh, from coaches as I'm refing an uphill basketball game about what I should call play. And you called that on them, but not on me. I, I really don't think you understand God. And you're asking for me to be totally and completely fair, which actually isn't the best judge that can judge. And we think we want a God who is fair, but what that would mean for us is way worse than fair. Some of us know what Bitcoin is. Some of us think I just cursed in a different language. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. It is a digital token that represents value. And so I don't, it, Dusty is the Bitcoin expert on staff, so if you have questions, you can talk to him or her, I don't know. Um, uh, Stefan Thomas, a programmer in San Francisco, has two guesses left 
at his keys to unlock his business. Back when Bitcoin was was first being mined and programmed and created by computers, um, people were buying it at alarming rates. And, And the amount of Bitcoin that's on this hard drive that he could cash in for real American dollars is somewhere between 160 and 200 million dollars right now. It's been as valuable as about 600 million when Bitcoin boomed about a year ago. And the password that he set that he can't remember is required to unlock this small hard drive. It's known as an iron key. And that hard drive contains 7,002 Bitcoins. Mr. Thomas wrote the password down on a small piece of paper and doesn't remember where it is. And he has two guesses left because this hard drive is built in such a way that if you put in the password wrong 10 times, it will encrypt every file on the hard drive and then print the password on the chip. He would say this, I would just lay in bed and think about it. Then I'd go to the computer with some new strategy and it wouldn't work. And I'd be desperate to find out. Laying in bed all night, wondering what that password was. He said, I finally had to put that hard drive in a watertight bag and bury it in my backyard so I couldn't see it anymore. Because it just consumed me. Here's the thing. Do you realize Jesus, when he thinks about locking his doors, lays awake in bed at night? That's a metaphor, so but keep in mind, Jesus says he wants nothing more than those who are locked in It's the awareness that God brings us freedom and confidence, that his grace is to be determined by how we treat others, that we should be caring and sensitive. We tend to know these truths abstractly, but they're not often translated into practice, either in how we view ourselves or how we treat others or how we relate to the gospel. Here's some more of of Snodgrass as he talks about the culmination of his parable from his Lord of the Sabbath. Christian worship often lacks anything special. It may have form or tradition or energy or novelty, but joy is in short supply. Joy deserves focus as the true mark of Christianity, for it is directly connected with the theological awareness of the character and attitude of God as one who seeks and celebrates covenant. At some level, Christian worship entails entering into God's own attitude of finding and establishing a people for himself. The true mark of a Christian is joy. Joy at the recovery of what had been lost. And when what makes God happy makes you happy, that's when you really know you're a Christian. And if I could be, if I could be honest just for a moment, I'm not sure that the word that anyone would use to characterize Christianity might be different than Christianity. Man, I I so desperately want it to be. I see reverence. I, I see solemnity. I see uprightness. I see devoutness, but I don't know that I see joy. I don't know if I see just this expression of overwhelming emotion towards the goodness of God. When Jesus would heal people, when he'd mend their legs and they could finally walk again, what did they do? They ran, jumped, sang. They could not help but express what had happened to them. And man, if I could just invite, could we be a people of joy? We 
eager to join in the joy of Jesus as he's been recovering lost people. One of the phrases that um, I heard repeated over the summer, I got to work with some different college students at some events, and one of the things that their superiors would say to them all the time is, hey, tell your face you're happy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I thought it was good too. Tell your face you're happy. Like, are you happy? You say, yes, I'm, I'm happy, very happy with how my life is going. Tell your face. Let other people know. Joy is contagious, and when we inject joy into a situation, it becomes impossible to not replicate everywhere. I, I heard a preacher uh, tell this line. He was known as being incredibly joyful and happy all the time, and, and, and somebody asked him, do you ever wake up grumpy? And he said, no, I let her sleep in. here's the deal. I think if Jesus is in the room today, and he is, we as his bride, I think he'd give us a nudge. Say, hey, we've been a little grumpy. We've been a little bit of arms folded and and frowns on our faces, and, and you said you're happy about being here, but could we just tell our faces we're happy? Can we just express our worship and our, our wonder at the God whose grace we don't understand, who goes after the one, who is desperate to have his children home again? Can we announce with all that we are the joy that fills our being? Joy marks these parables, but there's a second thing to it, and it's repentance. See, it's not just the recovery of what was lost, but Jesus will, as he's expressing the meaning of the parable, say, there's more joy over one who repents. It's a simple Greek word. It's the Greek word metanoueo. And it comes from the root, the root word nu, which, mean, which means mind. So metanoueo, or repent, simply means to change one's mind or to go in the other Jesus says those who have been recovered, those who were lost and who are now found, are those who have changed their mind and instead of trying to get further away from God, are now eager to come back. So there's there's two different kinds of people in the room this morning, and I hope no matter where you find yourself, you'll receive this message from these parables today. That some of us have never been close to God. In fact, maybe right now you never have felt so far away from him as you do right now, and you feel lost. Maybe you didn't even know it until right now, but like you've always known it at the same time. And no matter what else you've tried to do, to medicate, or whatever it might be, you can't eradicate this pain, this absence, this profound lack in your life, and you desperately need to just sit down right where you are and say, I am lost. I just remind you that Jesus is not the one who complains about how far sinners have gone. He's the one who with compassion in his heart says you're back where I was born. He is for you. He loves you. You're not the kind of thing that goes missing and goes unnoticed. The question is not can he find you, it's will you let yourself be found. And the other person in the room today Maybe you find yourself in this category, or maybe you're like me, and you've seen yourself in both categories at different stages of your life. You are offended at the grace of Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't say that out loud, but there's kind of this heart murmur 
you've been a good person. You don't have the reputation of a sinner. And somehow you've talked yourself into this line of thinking that there's some kind of accolade or applause that is due to you. And we may have masked this trueness about us with a false humility and pride. The truth is you don't want to welcome sinners into your house. You'd rather talk to them and condemn them. Because everything isn't just how you want it to be. Friend, please hear me. I am there so much more often than I ever cared to admit. Just as much grace is required to forgive you as he wants to forgive you. Won't you come and join Jesus in his grace? Let's stand.